morning, everyone. So good to be able to gather together this morning. I'm really enjoying the opportunity to gather together in our worship and excited to continue gathering together through coffee and a picnic later on. Um, and as I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm really excited by this series. Um, I've really enjoyed what we've been hearing so far, the stories that we've been able to hear. Um, I loved hearing what Mark shared last week on vocation. Um, as a team, we've relearned how to use our podcast. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to what Mark shared last week, jump on the podcast and have a listen to it, because I think it's really exciting um, what he shared. Um, but we're going to continue on with our series on scattering, on work, vocation, and ministry. Um, and we'll start off with our Bible reading. So if you'd like to follow along, we'll be reading from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 13. Been one of my favourite passages for a long time. If you're following the Bogle ranking system, this is my second favourite passage. Um, you're in for a goodie this morning. So Ephesians 4, 1 to 13. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a passage, hey? particularly love that picture of unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're continuing on this morning on what Mark sort of introed for us last week on this idea of vocation as a calling. And I'm hoping this morning we continue that conversation by considering what we mean by calling, what that means for how we scatter, for that picture of how we go out into neighbourhoods, homes, workplaces. And I think perhaps the first thing to consider with calling is something that's perhaps obvious, but I think something we often miss and that is to have a calling, there first has to be a caller. Having a calling implies that someone is actively called or invited us towards something. But I wonder, when you hear people talk about calling, is that the impression you get? Because I think when I hear people talk about calling, often we're talking about this act of self-discovery. I'm going to take some time away and work out what my calling is. I'm going to take some time off from technology. I'm going to go on a holiday and I'm going to work out who I am and what my calling is. But ultimately, when we talk about calling in that way, as the thing that's on me, we're talking about self-reflection, self-determination, or ultimately it's about me and us. But one of the ways we could translate calling in this passage, or calling or vocation as it comes up in the New Testament, is an invitation. It's something that comes from someone. It comes from the caller. It comes from the king. For there to be a call, there has to be a caller and a callee. It's inherently relational. It's not an individual thing, but something we do in community with someone else. And so the best way to work out what that invitation looks like, what our calling is, isn't just to try and work out who we are, 
but to work out who the caller is. Because if we don't know who the caller is, what hope do we ever have of working out what the call could be, what the call on our lives is? We've said this many times in this series, I hope we keep saying it again for as long as this series goes on, that vocation is not what we do, but who we are. And if you'll allow me to be slightly annoying and nuance that even a slight bit further, I would say the fact there's a caller tells us it isn't just who we are, but whose we are. That's one of the few corny lines I've got prepped for today. There's a few that come up. You can keep track if you like. But we are a people, as Paul writes in verse 1 this morning, who are prisoners of the Lord. Luckily for us, that's metaphorical. For Paul, he was regularly in chains. But I've been sitting with that introduction a bit this week and going, it really does give us a picture of who we are. I love the image of a prisoner because no one's a prisoner part-time. There's no one that's a prisoner for a few hours and then they go home to be free because then they're not a prisoner. You're either a prisoner or you're not. And as kingdom people, as the church, we are so captured by the king, captured by the good news, captured by the gospel, and ultimately captured by our calling that we've turned our lives over. We've turned our very selves over so that we can gladfully, joyfully declare that we are prisoners of the Lord. Our calling is we've not been called just to something, we've been called to someone. And it's that someone that helps us learn what it is we can do in the world, that helps us work out what vocation, what work, what ministry look like. But there is a caller. And all of that sounds lovely, right? The idea that there's a caller, there's someone that's calling me, there's there's a relational aspect. It all sounds really nice. But I wonder if it somewhat sidesteps the big question most of us have when it comes to vocation and work. And that is, what should I actually do with my life? What should my hours be spent on? Where should I go? What should I do? And Paul here answers at least my what question with a reflection on how. I think I said to you a few weeks ago that when I went to my mentor in university and said, what should I do with my life? He unhelpfully sidestepped it and said, this is, I think you should think about how you live your life. I've reflected, I think that's something that a lot of wise people tend to do. A lot of the books I read sort of ignore the question they're asked and answer their own question. And so Paul here answers the question that he sees as important. And he says, the life worthy of the calling we have been given looks like humility and gentleness, like patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity in the bond of peace. Not sure about you, but that to me is a how, because that could happen anywhere. That could take place in any what. We have the opportunity to do those things in all of our contexts. And this picture that Paul paints, I think, is the picture of kingdom living. The kingdom lived on earth as it is in heaven looks like these things. Looks like this amazing picture of unity in our diversity. Our diverse gifts, our diverse contexts, our diverse talents. And so it's clear that this calling that Paul describes isn't just to us as individuals. It's a communal calling. It's to all of us. It's to a community. Because the people of God are called to participate with him in what he's already doing in the world. If you'll allow me to coin my own um, corny phrase, God doesn't just call me, he calls we. Tamara begged me not to go with that today, but sleep deprived because of James, so went with it. Maybe not a good idea. But God has called us. He hasn't just called you or I. When we were living in Canada last year, 
um, we became friends with some people from Texas. And one of the great blessings they bestowed upon us was permission to use the term y'all. And I think this is really helpful in this passage because when I read the calling you have received, often I think Paul's talking to me. He's talking to a bunch of individuals. But I think let's reread a few sections with using that term because what he's using here is the plural. I urge y'all to live a life worthy of the calling y'all have received. There is one body and one spirit, just as y'all were called to one hope when y'all were called. I don't have the pronunciation quite right yet, but I'm working on it. We together, we the church, we as a people, have been invited into the shared vocation of partnering with God in bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The last half of our series that we're going to start next week is going to look at the different aspects of how we partner with God in his work. And it will look at how our work, our vocation, our ministry participates in communion with God, community building with God, and co-creativity with God. And I realise that I've brought up that question of the what, talked about how other people sidestepped it, and now I've sidestepped it myself. And I must admit, I love talking about the abstract how, what it could look like, that sense of imagination. And it's really hard to speak about the concrete what it could look like in your life. But I love something that Mark shared last week, that idea that we need Christians in every nook and cranny of society, not just to live the gospel, sorry, not just to preach the gospel, but to live it. We've heard a few stories of people's context over the last few weeks. We need Mark in accounting, working in a small business, not sucking every dollar out of every business he comes across, but helping other businesses to flourish, to ask the question, what does investment look like? We need Caitlin in HR, who doesn't view people just as resources, because how can I help people flourish in their context? Every day, or most days, I work as a physio, and I see people come in with their goals and their pains and the things they're going through, and I recognise that there are people who are desperately seeking to be treated with gentleness, treated with humility. Often people who need to be listened to with patience, who aren't feeling like they're being loved, people who haven't experienced shalom or peace. I didn't choose that profession because that's an opportunity to do those things. None of that appears in the job description. None of that would appear in your job description of your various contexts, but it is part of our calling. It is part of how we do good work. Because for me, each person that comes into that building is a context the kingdom needs to invade. The businesses Mark's working with, the people that Caitlin's working with, they are places that the kingdom needs to invade. They're an invitation that God extends to us. I met a Christian um, a year or two ago and we sort of worked out each other, went to church and he asked me what I was passionate about. And I sort of told him, marketplace theology is the thing that I really like, the things we're talking about in this series. Talked about how I'm convinced that God's interested in the workplace and the marketplace and in homes and neighbourhoods. And he turned to me at the end of what I thought was my impressive pitch and he, and he said, yeah, well, that's easy for you. You work as a physio in health and your boss is a Christian so you can talk about the gospel. I'm a teacher in a public school so I don't get to do marketplace theology. My heart broke when he said that. So I sort of asked him, why not? And he said to me, he gave me an example that at the moment he had a kid in his class that was going through an identity crisis. He was about to make some big decisions in their own life. And he was angry that the school wouldn't let him say anything to that child. Wouldn't let him preach at the child, essentially. And even more so, he was angry that he wasn't allowed to go to the, t- go to the kid's um, parents and tell them what was going on. Tell them what they should be doing. 
And I tried to outline what we're talking about this series because I went, I don't think that's our calling. I don't think that's marketplace theology. To me, it sounds like there's a child there that needs patience and humility extended to them by a teacher, that needs someone demonstrating love and peace and humility and gentleness. Because ultimately, our marketplace theology aren't the things we preach. It's our work is an opportunity to live our theology, to let the kingdom invade. I must admit, on the surface, maybe it's easier to see in some contexts or in some roles than others, but I'm convinced it invades all roles, all contexts, when we stop and think about it. Um, one context I always think about when it comes to work, and I'm not sure why it stuck with me, because it's from well before I was ever thinking about marketplace theology, is one from when I was much younger. And many of you know a bit of my story. I've shared a bit of my testimony from up there, up here. But my mum passed away when I was 13. And um, when, we, when that happened, it was in the afternoon. We had, it was in a hospice down at the Repat. And we had all of our family around. And we all prayed together afterwards and grieved together and, and yep, had some time praying and all of those great things. But a time came when we, it was time for us to get in the car. And um, probably selfishly, I was just thinking about me at the time, but looking back, I can't imagine what it was like for my dad getting in the car with me, my younger brother, my younger sister. And we realised no one had organised dinner. And people offered to, but the last thing we wanted to do was deal with more people rocking up at our door. We didn't want to really go home and have to whip something up. And so we stopped at a subway on the way home. I distinctly remember the one. And even as a 13-year-old, I saw my dad get out of the car and went, this is going to be rough for him. How is he going to pretend to be normal in this context? And I thought, what is that worker going to be like? How are they going to treat him? And that's just something that has stuck with me years and years since. And when I think about work, when I think about marketplace theology, I think there is an element of the good work that is really important in that role. I am so grateful that there are people in the service industry that meant we didn't have to go home and work over a kitchen bench or have to ask someone to come around and help us. That meant that we could go get some good food and then be by ourselves to grieve together. That good work is important. But I've also often wondered, did that person live out these kingdom principles to my dad? They wouldn't have a clue what was going on. But that day, were they treating people with gentleness? Were they listening well? Were they extending love in that one-minute interaction? We can live the how and what wherever we are. And quite obviously, they're not restricted to the workplace. On our street, we've seen the impact that love and unity extended can do. And often not just from those who have a faith, we have some lovely neighbours that extend these things regularly. And we can see how it builds up the neighbourhood, how it sows seeds into one another. But I wonder if your neighbour isn't being good at tidiness, if there's some issues with your neighbour, are you seeing it as an opportunity to practise humility, gentleness and patience? as an opportunity to do good work. The concrete what that you should do with your hours can't be addressed from here, can't be addressed in a message, because it's different for each of us. Mark has to work out what it looks like in accounting. Caitlin has to look like, work out what it looks like in HR. And I can't imagine what it looks like to bring the kingdom into those contexts, because I don't get those contexts. Mark's helped me a couple of times with tax, and I don't know half the words he's saying some of the time. But I am incredibly grateful that there are people with gifts in that area that are bringing the... Um, there were prisoners to Christ in their context, in your context. People who are in nooks and crannies that I don't even know exist. People who have the opportunity to bring the kingdom where I never could. 
We've said having a calling implies a caller. And we can do the same thing with gifting. Gifting implies a giver. In this passage, we're told of some different giftings. And there's several different gifting passages around the New Testament. This is one I'm actually a little bit nervous about using in some ways. I'll explain why in a second. But we're told some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors, some are teachers. Sometimes my worry with this one is it's naming things that we use as roles within the church, within our Sunday morning gathering, often people who are employed by the church. We forget this passage is written by an apostle who was also a tent maker, who implored people to work with their hands, who often refused payment for the things he did for the church itself. And he had his life changed by Jesus, the king, the great evangelist, the great teacher, the great all of these titles, but also the carpenter or stonemason, depending on who you read, who surrounded himself with fishermen and taxmen who became evangelists and apostles. We've said it a couple of times in this series, it's tempting to compartmentalise these parts of our lives. But I ask you, was Paul any less an apostle when he was making tents? I'm convinced not. I'm convinced he could extend peace, love and unity in those contexts. Last week, Mark shared an exercise about naming those gifts in our lives, naming those parts of our lives, the call on our lives in many ways. And if you haven't tried it yet, I'd add my encouragement to have a go at it. Um, I've done it at a few conferences now, and every time it's, it's helped me recognise something in myself and also recognise something in the cooler. But a few years ago, I did it um, probably for the second or third time, and it helped me name something which I probably shouldn't say at Richmond, given I'm formally on staff now. But I named that I rallied against the idea of ever being a pastor, but that I was probably pastoral in the spheres that I inhabited. And I'm probably one of those annoying people that that distinction matters a lot, and for other people it might not matter so much. But it's helped me realise that I'm pastoral when I'm a physio, when I'm working out how to be a dad, when I'm trying to beat my brother at cricket yesterday, that there's an element of, of that that invades all my being, not just a few hours a week. And I think we need to name those things in ourselves, but also in each other, to help us remember that our involvement in God's project in the world invades all parts of our lives not just small portions of it. One thing I can name as I've been going on this journey of um, marketplace theology is that I really hope there was a pastoral sandwich artist 16 years ago that recognised that Subway was the mission field, that there were people that needed love, unity and hope extended to them. Our king desperately wants people who are following him, people who, who can partner with him in the context they are, The kingdom breaking into this world is a project that we're all called to. And my giftings, my contexts aren't nearly enough. They're but a grain of sand. But they don't have to be enough because this was never about me. This was never about you. It wasn't even about y'all. It was about the caller. And we get to be a part of it. I think sometimes we say this so much that we forget the extraordinary nature of it. But the kingdom breaks into our world through our work the energy we extend purposely through our vocation and our calling. It should blow our mind that God chooses to do things that way because he doesn't need us to initiate the work. He isn't reliant upon us as if he couldn't do it if we weren't here. God could do whatever he likes, but he wants us to participate in building up the body of Christ in all contexts. 
of being people with diverse talents, diverse gifts, in diverse places, demonstrating unity in our diversity. Perhaps in this current season, um, this passage can be a bit challenging. I think in this season, the people of God are being called to imagine what unity in diversity looks like. I know that's one that I'm being challenged in. I'm working out what is it to worship together with people who might hold different views, who might have strong opinions on things. How do we demonstrate unity in the way we discuss those, in the way we imagine together? But I think, again, the opportunity to imagine these things, the opportunity to participate in our shared calling, it isn't a burden. It's an invitation. To be prisoners of the Lord isn't something that's a burden. It's glad tidings, if we can use a Christmas phrase. God isn't calling you, God isn't calling me to a fixed what. As if I miss, a job, miss out on a job interview and I've missed my calling. I chose to do the wrong thing at university, I've missed my calling. I've gone the wrong way in my um, career so far, I've missed my calling. Because there was never a fixed what. Our context looked different, but the how that is our calling is the same. It's the truths of this passage. I think there's a great beauty in the church, that we are a tapestry of our individual what's, if we can call it that. Individual contexts, homes, workplaces, the tapestry of all those things, they are the things that make up the kingdom. They're the places that we are invited into. They are the stories we get to tell. They are where we see work, vocation and ministry happen. They are where we can tell people about the caller. And so one thing I've loved about this series has been hearing each other's stories, hearing little portions of that tapestry, hearing where the kingdom's invading different places, um, so I'm going to invite Ryan up to sort of share a little bit of his vocational story, a little bit of what he's learning in work, vocation and ministry. Um, if you just grab the mic, there's one next to Melinda there. Um, when we were planning this series, um, we got a team of probably about six or eight of us together to sort of discuss the things we wanted to talk about. And Ryan was a part of that team. And when he shared a little bit of his vocational journey, I think we're all pretty excited, so we're very keen to hear his story as a part of it. But maybe if you could just start, Ryan, by telling us just what a normal week looks like for you, how you spend your time. So I work for the city of Onkabringa, which is um, one of South Australia's largest council regions, uh, which is all the way from Coromandel Valley down to Onkabringa. Includes lovely places um, like Port Nolunga and uh, McLaren Vale, so it's definitely a very nice place to work. Uh, my job title, uh, as a, I always feel it's a bit vague, it's Green Buildings Officer. Um, so what I do is I just paint buildings green, um, which doesn't quite work because I'm colourblind, so they end up red. No. Um, so primarily my role is looking at council's energy use. Um, we have about 460 buildings um, and about... Uh, our, our total cost of electricity for the ones that we don't lease out is... Uh, somewhere around a million dollars a year. So my job is to look at all of those sites and work out what are the opportunities for reducing those costs, but also that means reducing the um, energy use and that also means a reduction in the number of um, tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions that we release each year. So that's what I am meant to be doing. Uh, What I do day-to-day varies in, in the ways that I achieve that. So there's uh, bits of um, running business cases or auditing buildings or um, doing project management type things um, and 
all sorts of other things in that vein, as well as dealing with electricity invoices, making sure the process for electricity invoices works when you're dealing with hundreds of bills. It's not just your one home bill, it's, it's too many. Um, and, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, another really exciting part of my job that I get to do is I get to go and speak with the uh, groups that lease our facilities. So most of the sporting clubs and community centres in uh, the region are owned by the council and leased out uh, to the footy clubs and the netball clubs and the community groups. Uh, and they are often... Um, Often they have the issue where they're trying, they have limited funds coming in and, and they want to spend as much money as they can on doing the programs that they're doing. So that means that they often have an issue with electricity or their gas bills or their water bills. Uh, so I will generally go out, chat to them about it, um, work out where they're using their power and how I can help them to understand their electricity bill and where they can then reduce it and save money, which then means that they can put more money into what the, the programs that they're doing for the community. So that sort of all the things that I'm meant to be doing in my job. There's a whole lot of other things that I end up doing because unfortunately that's the type of person that I am. I do the other people's jobs as well, just to help out. Um, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, could you just tell us a bit of your journey of vocation? Sure. How you've ended up there yeah. and what that's looked like? So at the end of high school, I had the standard thing of just trying to decide what I was going to do. Uh, I did, I guess, fairly well in the maths and science subjects. So I thought engineering was a good route. Uh, and then eventually uh, chose to do mechanical and sustainable energy engineering, which I didn't really know what that was going to involve aside from, you know, what it said in the title. Uh, I really enjoyed the course. Uh, there were definitely the, um, the, the best parts that I found in it, though, weren't actually the engineering. So as much as the engineering side of things where you're doing complex calculations and actually using all those things that they teach you in high school maths, you'd have to use in uni maths. Um, so... But the things that I enjoyed the most were when I was actually looking at the um, ways that we use electricity or gas and then how we can reduce it. So uh, those subjects were really interesting. So I was like, yep, this is, this is really cool. Um, and that was where I sort of realised that I had a passion for uh, the way that we do, um, I guess, what you call biblical stewardship of the earth. So it's that idea that, you know, we're created on this earth, but we actually do need to look after it. And so our calling as humans and... I guess our, our, our mandate is to look after the earth. And so that means that it matters how we use the resources that we have. And so for electricity, it's easy to just not think about it, but you know, every uh, bit of energy that you use for electricity has to come from somewhere. And whether that's something that you know, we're using uh, fossil fuels or if we're using a renewable source, that actually matters. So I was like, yep, this is really cool. I'm really passionate about this. I'm gonna go get a job in this area. Uh, and so I ended up uh, working for Centrelink. So I got a job straight out of uni uh, in a completely different area doing uh, software development for Centrelink. Uh, there was a specific STEM program that they were giving jobs to graduates with engineering and science and maths degrees and I was like, okay, sure, it's, it's a job. So it was definitely not what I wanted to be doing. Um, but despite that, uh, it was really, uh, I guess, a time of you know, working out what it looks like to actually be a professional in a workplace, but also to realise that what I was doing, it didn't matter that I wasn't doing what I was passionate about. It didn't necessarily matter that I wasn't, you know, saving the planet. Um, there were still things in that context that were important, and there are still ways that God was using me to do things that uh, were, would have an impact on people, even though I was working in the debt system. So it wasn't a positive impact, but, it, you know, it all flowed around and worked. Um, but, like, actually... The, 
the idea of working on these systems that are actually really important for you know, Australia as a whole uh, actually has meaning. And so that sort of helped, even though it wasn't what I wanted to be doing, it really helped to actually have a bit more meaning and, and purpose in that. In saying that, probably by about the 18-month mark, I was ready to get out. Uh, and by the two-year mark, when I would walk to get coffee, I would be lamenting, how long, oh Lord, will I be left in this place? Um, so, it, yeah, interesting times. But eventually, um, the job that I, I guess, spoilers, I got the job, but the job was advertised. Um, it was released in December, the advert, and I started the following May. So that was a five-month period of being like, there's this job that I really want, and I think it's really what I want to do, uh, but this weird uh, middle ground of not knowing if I was going to get it, you know, do I actually want to hope for it, um, and that sort of thing. And so I spent a lot of time being like, um, you know, just praying, you know, God, I really want this, but, you know, you know, if, only if it's in your will, only if that's what you want me to be doing. Um, and it was actually, you know, funny coming in today that the um, song Build My Life, um, Tom was singing today, because that was one of the songs that really was a key point for me in that time. Uh, because, you know, in trusting that God is our firm foundation in whatever we do, you know, it, it was really that sense of being like, well, I really want this job, but in the end it doesn't matter because God will use me in whichever context that I'm in. Um, whether that is staying at Centrelink and, you know, finding other things to do that I'm, you know, more, you know, can find more enjoyment or passion in or whether it's actually getting this job and going and doing something that I'm really excited about. Um, thankfully, I did get the exciting opportunity, um, but it's, I think what's really, like, and I'm sure, you know, people who have jobs or have, you know, just are generally human would understand that you're not always going to enjoy everything every day that you do. You're not always going to feel like, you know, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to kick all these goals and I'm going to save all this energy and save all this money. Um, that doesn't happen every day because some days it's you're going to work and you're spending time on hold to Origin to talk to them about an invoice that hasn't been sent and all these sorts of things. It's like, why am I doing this? But actually knowing that in the end, um, what we do matters and um, yeah, it, it has purpose because it's what God has um, called us to do and it's how we're actually being part and contributing. So, mm. yeah. Uh, that's, that sense. <laughs> that's great. Um, finally, one of the things I've loved hearing you speak about in the past is the opportunity to create order from disorder yeah. in, within workplaces. And could you share a bit of what that's looked like for you? Yeah, sure. So, one of the ways that I, I think it's really good that everyone has different brains and thinks differently, because one of the way, so the way that I think is that I often look at a system and then try and work out the most uh, optimized way of doing things, uh, which is. To me, this is that's the idea of taking chaos and then trying to make it more ordered and run better and more efficient uh, and everything like that. So, what that looks like in my job is that it's when you know someone is uh, asking me a question about well, where does this electricity bill go or come from, and actually being like, well, where does it come from, and, and tracing that back and working out well, what is the best way that we can do things there. Uh, it also looks like um, I, I deal with a lot of numbers, so. One of the things with electricity meters is that if you've got a newer one, it stores your power, your, what, how much power you use every 30 minutes for 24 hours, and it records that data for the past two years. So if I go to a sporting club, I generally can know that I'll have around 140 to 180,000 pieces of individual data that will tell a story about how they use power. So what I really enjoy about this, and it doesn't sound that exciting, but what, what's really cool about that is that um, I can take that information and then 
by, you know, by analysing it, by averaging it and by showing it in charts and graphs and spreadsheets, I can then talk to the people in that sporting club and say, well, as you can see here, you know, you're not actually using much power in the middle of the day, it's only when you turn on your sports lighting at the end of the day. Or when they say something like, well, you know, councils come and put in this really high-powered um, security light, what's going on with that? You know, I can then talk to them about how, well, you know, yes, the security light's using power all through the day, but actually it's your 14 fridges that are also using power through the rest of the day. So it's things like that. And, and, and breaking down what is something that can be quite confusing, so whether that's the energy use or even just electricity bills in general, and being able to create some order and sort of explain that to people in a way that makes sense. So, yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. It's amazing what stories can do, isn't it? I think... I never, would never be able to get excited about electricity meters, but hearing a story about it makes me excited. Um, I think you shared in our meeting about spreadsheets for a little while, and I remember going, I never thought I'd be able to be excited about a spreadsheet, but hearing Ryan tell a story about it does. Um, let's pray together, because as we have said all through this series, we're recognising each other's contexts are the mission field, not just to preach the gospel, but to do good work. So um, we're going to sing together in a moment, but if you could stand together, let's pray with Ryan. King Jesus, thank you that you call us. Thank you that you are the caller. Thank you that you allow us or invite us to participate in your work. Lord, we think especially of Ryan this morning and the context you've placed him in, the passions you've placed on his heart, the talents that you've given him, the opportunities to see chaos restored, to teach people order, to see um, the care for your creation. Lord, I thank you for those gifts and talents, and I pray um, over this coming week, Lord, that you will help him to do good work, help him participate in your kingdom, to bring the kingdom to a nook and cranny that the rest of us couldn't reach. Lord, thank you for the gift that he is to our community. I thank you for the gift he is to his workplace, to his neighbourhood, and help that to be evident this week. Amen.